Welcome to Tim Goodman's TV Talk Machine. I'm Tim Goodman, and today we have the second part of our two-part interview with documentary filmmaker Ken Burns. Ken Burns is one of our great American filmmakers. In 1981, his first film for PBS, Brooklyn Bridge, was nominated for Academy Award. He has gone on, of course, to create a prolific, award-winning career making documentaries for PBS. In September of this year, Burns will be back with another of his enormous undertakings, The War, a seven-part, 14-hour examination of World War II. In this second part, we pick up with Burns talking about parallels to our current war in Iraq as they relate to the World War II. He also talks about how in that war there were no red state, blue state partisanship. And he also goes on to say, as many of you might be wondering, that this film is not homework. This is not just a straight documentary. It's solid storytelling and entertainment. There is also an interesting element to your film and the timing that it's kind of when it comes out is that the Iraq War, the current Iraq War, it's just so polarizing and in this and it has had such a it, we're we're seeing the beginnings of a profound effect on this country. And I'm I'm not trying to say that you know we we have this news fatigue or war fatigue of the Iraq War of seeing all these casualties or reading all these roadside bombs, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a different war. There, this World War II, we had a it was sort of a just cause. You could see it was a just cause. It was we, more clear, and and in Iraq War is less clear. Two things: how, how did that affect you when you were making the film, and how how did you think about those parallels? And do you and do you have any thoughts about when this comes out and we're in this ambiguously yeah. constructed war? Well, I think it. I hope it makes people pause and think about going into war. I mean, our first episode is called A Necessary War. And and at one point, the guy who coins that phrase, one of our talking heads, says, or a just war. So you're absolutely right. This, this was a necessary and a just war. And because everybody was involved in it, the statistics were never felt to be numbing. They were terrifying. You check the, the, the list for somebody you know. But because we have this separate class, for us, it's the fatigue of hearing the same thing over again and people who don't seem to have a solution. As of November of 2006, we were in Iraq longer than it took us to respond to Pearl Harbor, mount a, a campaign against that aggressor, mount a campaign against an even more formidable aggressor on the other side of the world, fight a world war in thousands of places, win that world war with our allies and accept unconditional surrender from those enemies. And we've been in Iraq where we think we're on a treadmill. If anything, we're, we're losing ground. We're going backwards. When the Civil War came out, it was just a month after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and a war fever in the United States. Everybody was beating their breast. Everybody was excited. And the single greatest review of a war which I, I think the first Gulf War was a legitimate uh, war and, and masterfully handled – the best review we got was that after the Civil War series came out, more than a quarter of the population dropped their enthusiasm for war. Mm -hmm. Because you just need to be reminded of what it's like. Now we're not allowed to see the coffins coming back. So there's one end of it. We don't have funerals filmed. We rarely see the footage or we do it surreptitiously in the most grotesque way on these websites in which people take delight. And it's it's not – any more the participation in the loss of human life as it is some kind of perverse snuff film uh, that we're, we're witnessing. Um, this was a point. The Second World War was the greatest single concerted effort in American history. There were no red states. There were no blue states. Everybody had their oar in the water pulling in the same direction. Not to say there wasn't a black market. We talk about that. Not to say that people weren't conscientious objectors. We talk about that. It's just that most everybody was together on this. And I think that if anything runs through all the films I've made, forget Civil War and, and The War, but everything I've done from Huey Long and Brooklyn Bridge is that I'm interested 
in speaking to that which connects us. You know, the Latin motto of the United States is e pluribus unum. It means out of many, one. And Arthur Schlesinger Jr., the great historian who passed away the day we were recording this, said that there's too much pluribus and not enough unum. And I think that if I had to think about what I have dedicated all of the last 32 years to professionally, it's been unum. The idea of what is it in these stories that bring us together rather than tear us apart. I mean, I've got my own political points of view, and I can argue against it. But I also know that the person who holds what seems to me a disparate political view doesn't make them an idiot, doesn't make them a moron. It makes them someone who is, in fact, a lot like me, you know, wants to raise their kids right, wants to learn, all that sort of stuff. So I, I want to speak to that. I, I can, you know, dust it up with a, you know, in a bar over, <laughs> you know, the Iraq war or, or this thing or that thing, this political candidate or that. But the point of my work is to try to remind us how different. Remember, um, George McGovern was painted as someone just to the left of, of, uh, of um, you know, like Che Guevara and Fidel Castro in the 72. Well, he was a World War II of pilot and a hero at that from South Dakota, that great breeding ground of radicalism. <laughs> right. Um, and when you think the difference between, say, a Ronald Reagan and a, um, and a George McGovern is really just inches and not the wide gulf that we like to drive trucks through. Right. Um, and I just like to celebrate, uh, contrary to the, to the bloviators <laughs> who populate our cable stations, um, what we share in common. You signed in January of 2007, you signed a 15-year deal with PBS, which is, uh, congratulations on that. But uh, now that, I, I did read that someone said that you'll be making films for the rest of your life. For PBS. <laughs> well, well, you know, he looks a little younger than that. Give him a little yeah. credit. He could be still around after well, 15 I'm years. I'm 53. Uh, it takes me until I'm 69. But it's really, a lot was made of it. It's just essentially renewing vows. I'm in the middle of already a 10-year thing with him. And this was the next 10-year, 10, 10 to 12 years. But it's... We're, we're settling it three years out. Right. But it looks like an amazing <laughs> thing. But look, let me just tell you, I, I have many friends in Hollywood and in television. We sit around at dinner. Everybody complains. Well, they wouldn't let me. They, you know, I'd love to have done two hours like you can on this. Or somebody says they took this dramatic film and they changed the ending or they wouldn't give me this writer. And I'm sitting there going, wow, how lucky am I? I don't have any of that complaint. If you don't like any of my films, Tim, it's all my fault. Right. It's all my fault. And I don't want it any other way. And where has that happened? In public television. So where are you going to measure your bottom line? You can measure it with the millions they have. Or you could measure it from a kind of satisfaction about the freedom that you have to do the things that you want. And it's so funny that public television, much maligned, has to be all things to all people and obviously is going to fail all the time. Amongst 500 channels, limited budget, shoestring, attacked from the left, attacked from the right, always having to justify its very existence each year in Congress, nonetheless, in that environment, makes the best public affairs, the best science, the best nature, the best biography, the best arts, the best history – of any of the things. I mean, why would anyone leave? And if somebody said to you, would, well, you could stay two years or could you stay 12 years? Let's, I'll, I'll, I'll stay 12 years. Right, right. You know, it's a happy marriage. Well, now, on, and on, on a nuts and bolts question, seven years, almost seven years in the making of this. And I know that you do things simultaneous. You're yeah. doing it. You're doing a, uh, I think a 10 part uh, series on the national park. National park. It's, it's six parts. It'll be 12 hours. Yeah. Okay. Six parts, 12 hours. So, but how, how in the span of seven years do you sort of, 
maintain, you know, a, a desire for the, for the subject at hand? You know, people ask that all the time. And for me, it's not a dumb question. It's just like, it gets better every day. Mm. Like people say, I would never, how would I, you know, still do it? Well, you know, because of the fortunate situation I'm in, it's like kids, you know, it's only getting better. You know, my kids grow up and, and each each new year I've got a different relationship with them. So every day is learning. Now, a lot of documentary films are merely the expression of somebody's already arrived at end. So I'm going to tell you what I know. We're not like that. We're, we go into subjects that we don't know about and learn as much as we're able to. And then it becomes, hey, let me tell you what I've just learned. And there's a big difference from that. Right, Some, right. It's, it, look – Let's just say this. For all the stuff we've talked about, it's historical and what people knew and what people don't know and our kids. This isn't homework. This film is not homework. This is not, um, you know, you do for credit. Right. This is entertainment. These are stories. And they, I defy you to find more incredible stories. I, I, I guarantee that if I, I flew down to Los Angeles and took just five of the 40 people you'll meet in this film and just pitched their live arc – of which we've integrated, I could do a feature film on each one of those five people. And I know a studio tomorrow would do it when you tell you the impossible, improbable stories that are 100% true. And, and in, along that vein, too, maybe that's one, or is that one reason that in this film you're sort of telling the story a little differently? You have less, I don't think you have a historian in here. You might have all. There no, nobody, you're not in my film unless you've uh, been in the war, or you're waiting anxiously for somebody that you're related to to come home from that war. And this is a different, this time a little different touch to- from you. Totally different. It's completely bottom up. You look at the Civil War; it's bottom up. You know, you you learn a Southern grunt, you learn a Northern grunt, you go to a, a town in the North, a town in the South, but you spend more of your time getting into the mind of Lincoln and Jefferson Davis and Lee and Je- Grant and Sherman and Stonewall Jackson. You know it. Uh, why? Uh, uh, Roosevelt and Churchill, uh, Patton and uh, Ike, they pass in our scenes in right. front of us. We actually cry when Roosevelt dies, but they're not major characters. We're not in the White House thinking about strategy. I think I show one shot of the White House in an entire 14 and a half hours. Right. And it's talking about him reluctantly landing troops in North Africa because the people need to be entertained. They need to see that we have boots on the ground in the European theater. And it's already the end of 1942. It's almost a year since Pearl Harbor. And we don't have a single boot on the ground in Europe. Yeah. And, uh, and, and North Africa isn't even Europe, but at least is considered part of that theater. Well, I think one of the interesting things here, too, is that, um, you know, you're talking about staying in the National Archive for five years yeah. or whatever. And you're, just, you're just going through boxes of photographs and film, and you're trying to get, uh, you talked earlier about B-roll, you're trying to yeah. get something that people haven't seen before, different uh, elements of that. And uh, obviously, you found a lot of stuff people hadn't seen stuff. before. You, um, I think there's some even very famous foot, footage that yeah. you actually got extra seconds out of that'll be new to people. All of that's something we can all look forward to. But I, I wanted to tie in my question to that is, in this search, A, did you see stuff that you just didn't even know existed? And B, what new about World War II uh, did you learn in, in the process? Oh, my God. I don't know. A day that we didn't learn, I think it's just the sheer brutality of it. I mean, the the footage that is probably most familiar to people is the shot that lasts about four seconds that's in every documentary about World War II. And it's uh, cameramen shooting back towards Omaha Beach and looking at an American drop uh, in the sand. Well, we found the outs of that shot, and it goes on for something like eight seconds, and you actually see three Americans fall, and it just you know triples you know, exponentially the feelings that you have about this uh, film. And I think that that's what happens when you spend the time. We learned 
you know, the horrors of battles that never, I, nobody ever taught me about Peleliu, of the Hurtgen Forest. I mean, I've heard that we have a whole episode filled with the mistakes, battles that should never have been fought and were horrific losses. Um, to me, when I look at that footage of D-Day and I see those guys coming up and they're from Iowa or Minnesota, Sacramento, Mobile, Waterbury, and they're landing there. And it's Europe's problem, they could easily say. Why are they doing this, you know? And what is propelling them up the beach? And a lot of those guys aren't making it up that beach. That was a killing zone in Omaha for a lot of those people. And some of them didn't even, as Spielberg's film showed so magnificently, the gate on the LST hadn't even fallen before they were dead, or most of them did. It's just an amazing thing. You just learn about what people go through. And that to have these veterans then, if we bear witness, we just shut up a little bit and bear witness to their testimony of what it was like. A grunt in Europe, a second lieutenant that we interviewed, who didn't brush his teeth, didn't change his clothes or take a shower in six months. His average life expectancy on the line, the combat line, of, of his rank was 14 days. That meant you were either killed or severely wounded. So he goes six months and then he's severely wounded. And what did they do? He was, he's of that 10% that saw combat. They take him and they patch him up because they're going to send him to Japan because he's good. He's good at what he's done. He's 19, 20 years old. He's a professional killer. He's learned if he survived that long, he's somebody we got to know. And so they patch. He gets the best possible care. They're going to patch him up and get him ready. So when that atomic bomb goes, he just goes into his tent and he cries for three days. He's going to live. He's going to go home. He's going to have a life. He's going to be able to marry. He's going to be able to have children. He's going to live to an old age as he has, you know. And that's just one person. Yeah. It's just one person. And I've abbreviated his story <laughs> right, and contracted right. it and didn't talk about him, right. you know, drinking wine and trying to, you know, pick up French girls. And uh, <laughs> when he saw the only Jew he knew in his life get, who was his, you know, on in his little platoon get shot and the bravery and what others thought of him before uh, this moment, I mean, it's just... It's stunning. I mean, is there a, is there a decompression part for you in one of these films? I mean, obviously you get it, you 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 dive very deeply into these stories. Yeah, well, you're gonna have to ask me that a lot later than this because right. we can't let it go. Right. I mean, it, I've never had a film this way. I mean, usually there's this great thing we pop the champagne when you lock the picture. Yeah. And then we started working on the soundtrack, and then I'm still tinkering with stuff. I just saw something in a screening last night, and I just said to Lynn, my, my co-producer and co-director, I said, "Look, I want to change that map. That didn't work the way Tarawa comes up." It's, and a part of it is it's fine. Right. It's just we love these people. We love these It's hard to let go. It's hard to let go of them. We don't. And they've become into our lives. You know, we now exchange Christmas cards. They are people we might see at Thanksgiving. Right. And we love them. You know, my own dad who went to uh, France in May of 45 and just missed the action, fortunately, um, is in the film. Uh, he's the, sh the young, naive, hand-tinted picture of a soldier over our main title when it says the war. Uh, in the first episode and he's gone and I really really miss him and there's almost every day there's something I just want to pick up the telephone and then you go oh. um, but these people that we've gotten to know have kind of been substitute families for all of us and uh, the editors the writer um, the producers the research you know which is done mostly by us the producers that we don't have any researchers to speak of right and um, small cadre I mean about 10 or 12 people really made this film. Hundreds contributed to it. But it, there's been an intense cadre, and we will never forget this experience as long as we live. 
you have said that this of all your work might be I mean and we were talking about the newest baby but this you know, could be your greatest piece I've, I travel sometimes to a place called the press tour in Los Angeles <laughs> in which all of the television critics assemble and everybody says is this your best film and I always go you know no I've got two daughters who you guys have known and watched grow up and I love them the same as I now have three daughters the, my daughters and for the first time and I believe that and I still feel that but there's something about this one that just has a kind of – it feels like an exponential growth, uh, not only as me as an artist or filmmaker or craftsman and, and certainly Lynn as my um, uh, co-conspirator and all this and all the people, but just the emotional force of it. If, if you think Civil War packed a wallop, this film has got it. You know, And I, I hate showing just clips disconnected right. and discombobulated, but you, you can get it even from that. And Well, I can say that uh, – um, much like one of your films, I mean, your history uh, as a documentarian is is unbelievable, and I've been part of it uh, as a critic to to watch some of these great films. And um, I almost feel like sitting here with you for forty five minutes or an hour is like you showing a twenty minute clip. I mean, to, to actually do justice and do it and to do a really good interview with you is I'm going to need more time, which we yeah. don't have. We just barely touched. We a barely bit scratched in this film. the surface. Ba- barely got any in the history. So maybe maybe when this gets closer to date, we'll have another chat with you I, over the phone. I or- promise you, I'll do that. I'm happy to do that. I, I think it's really important because I think we are in a country. You know, when the Civil War came out, everyone stopped and everyone can tell you what they were doing. And you know, the ratings went up every night. And Johnny Carson talked about it every night in his monologue, and it was an event. But back then, if you think about it, 1990, which doesn't seem that long ago, there were maybe 30 channels if you had a cable system, and most people didn't yet have a cable system. Now we got, everybody's got it. It's 500 channels. And just even arresting somebody's attention, even to knowing that it's on, uh, is a much greater challenge. But then being able to sit and let something wash over, and that's what we're looking for, an experience together. And I remember I met this woman at the end of the after the Civil War's broadcast, and she was in her 80s, and her kids were so anxious that she, uh, who usually went to bed at seven o'clock, had stayed up every night. And, you know, Mom, why did you do that? We will tape it for you. And she goes, No, I want to watch it when everyone else is. And so, shared experience is at the heart of what it is. We may all be independent, free agents with our own blogs and our own MySpace space and all the things, but. Behind it all, we all yearn for community, and we yearn for community. And there's a few things that I think reward that um, taste, that appetite. Well, I think that um, this is going to be another Ken Burns event. I mean, I think the war is going to be one of those – you've done a number of films that have been major, major events. I think this is going to fall in that category, and uh, uh, no doubt we'll direct more people to it. And um, I really appreciate you coming in and taking some time. It was the first hour of the 14-hour Ken Burns interview, but exactly. so we'll, 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 try, we'll try for some more later. It's my pleasure. You know, we just uh, so grateful you're helping us get the word out. In case you missed it, you can find part one of Tim Goodman's interview with Ken Burns, along with previous TV Talk Machine podcasts at sfgate.com slash podcasts.